Hello, and welcome to the Left Field Shout. My name is Joe Greenwood, and I hope you're all doing well this week. Um, this is the first episode of the first season of the Left Field Shout. Uh, as you can see in the episode title, we'll be talking about the new Richard Linklater film, Boyhood, which has been on release for the last few months, and the debut film from Gia Coppola, Palo Alto. Uh, and also, after those two reviews, I'll be answering some questions. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoy this week's show, and let's get straight into Boyhood, the new film by Richard Linklater. Goodbye, yard. Goodbye, crate myrtle. Goodbye, mailbox. Goodbye, box of stuff Mommy won't let us take with us, but we don't want to throw away. Goodbye, house. I'll never like Mommy as much for making us move. Samantha, why don't you say goodbye to that little horse shit attitude, okay? Because we're not taking that in the car. So Richard Linklater's 12 year in the making, Boyhood, which follows the life of Mason Jr. from the ages of 6 to 18, as played by Ella Coltrane, uh, is a minor masterpiece, purely in the fact that it exists is a miracle that Linklater was able to create a film as coherent as this across such a long space of time, and to make something this engaging across such a long space of time is a testament to his skill as a filmmaker. Um, also, what's quite interesting is that across those 12 years, as he was making this, he was also making Bad News Bears and other less reputable films in his back catalogue, Fast Food, Fast Food Nation. I think it was called. That wasn't particularly good either. But here, Linklater really is at his best. Uh, he plays with the cinematic tools that he is best at using, which is playing with time and uh, our notions of time. Um, he has done this many times before in stuff like uh, the Before trilogy before sunrise, before sunset, and before midnight, uh, where we see a relationship at intervals across a long stretch of time. And then also Dazed and Confused, which takes place across uh, one night in 1970s Texas. And uh, Slacker, which takes place across a single day, where the camera moves, where the film follows characters passing on the story for one another into their own mini-stories sort of as a baton sort of passing storytelling. But here Linklater uses that idea of passing the baton on with time, but instead it's the same character passing the baton on to himself. Um, Linklater shows us Mason's life in these yearly segments. We see him at the ages of 6 through to 18, but there is not... Each segment doesn't get the same amount of time. He's not strict with how he uh, unfurls his story towards us. Some years take only a couple minutes, some take up to about 20 minutes in the film. And he focuses on different things within each year. Mainly the relationships that Mason has within it and how he reacts to them. There are a few constants throughout the film, along with Mason, uh, that are his mother, as played by Patricia Arquette, his sister, 
as played by Laurie Lee Linklater, Richard Linklater's daughter, and his father, Mason Sr., as played by Ethan Hawke. Um, Hawke and Arquette's characters actually trade positions throughout the film. At the start, when we first see Hawke, he's fresh-faced, he's a bit of a bum of a dad, you know, not around, sees them occasionally, goes off to Alaska, and is very singular in his goals. And by the end of it, he's mustachioed with a new wife and child in a minivan. Whereas Arquette is fresh-faced, single mother of two, focused solely on them. By the end, she's a university professor, single-minded on her career, pushing her children away by moving from the family home into a small flat. And whilst their and whilst their character arcs move up and down and intertwine, Mason's Juniors is a straight line. And it's the line that we follow throughout the film. Of course, he has those cliched high school moments, school bully in the bathroom, pushing him first girlfriend that cheats on him with a jock. But because we spend such an intimate amount of time with Mason, these moments feel legit. They don't feel like plot beats in a script that was only written to be sold to a major studio by an up-and-coming writer. Linklater is not interested in story beats here, he's interested in truth. And whereas some directors would have had the abusive drunk stepfathers come back into it and to create tension within it. I think later instead chooses to use them more as a picture book. That's something in the past, it's gone now. We don't have to think about it anymore, but we know it's there and we know it influences the characters' decisions from that point onwards. Much like in how everyone else, in everyone's life, decisions in the past affect your future and present and affect how you live your life. The stark realities of ageing are also laid out very harshly in front of us. These characters aren't glamorous, they're real, you know. We see Hawk develop lines across his face, we see Arquette, you know, gain weight and look a lot, still look fresh-faced, but look like a woman who's, as you can see in her eyes, been through relationships that have been tough on her, made decisions that have been tough on her. Perhaps being a product of a single uh, single parent family myself and having a father who wasn't around apart from occasions like Hawke's character is, uh, I found that the film could equally have been called Parenthood or, to be more fair, Motherhood. Uh, Arquette's character is strong, and powerful, uh, and uncompromising. And whilst Hawk has the the more glamorous moments, taking his son camping and giving him life advice like this uh, about how to, you know, get over a breakup with a girl, it's really Arquette's character who is the hero of it. She's the one that provides the house. She's the one that makes sure he gets his education writes and he goes to the best university possible and makes sure that he's the best that he could possibly be. 
it's Arquette who is the hero of this film, not Hawke, as some have suggested. I think often some people can get confused, not confused, maybe distracted by the more Hollywood moments of the film. Because, as I've said before, Linklater isn't interested in big story beats, he's interested in truth. And the truth of it is, is that Arquette's character weighs heaviest on Mason. She's the one that holds the biggest influence over him. And you can see her parenting within him. His work ethic, his desire to want to be the best of himself that he could possibly be, all comes from her. Her desire to want to improve her life by getting an education as with two children, already having two children, is something that you can see in his actions as he, you know, works in a kitchen in some terrible restaurant trying to save up money so he can do whatever for his photography or to fix his car. And whilst Linklater's film could be called Motherhood and ultimately is about boyhood, it could also equally be called Life because the film is ultimately an ode to the joys and pitfalls of it all. Camping trips with absent fathers, drunk stepdads, first loves, first pains, the moment you realise the world isn't set up just for you, when life can be beautiful and when it can be unfair. Boyhood really is a film for the ages. Within the short time that it's been released, it's been hailed as a masterpiece, and I can't disagree. Uh, I feel like this is a film that will be talked about for the rest of this year, going up to awards times, and even in 10 years' time, 20 years' time. This is a film that everyone should experience because it feels so true to life, which is what cinema does best, I feel. Were you playing video games? Shooting hookers? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Speaking of brilliant, I corrected your paper. I called it Alexander the Dubious. You could have just corrected it. You didn't have to rewrite the whole thing. Yeah, well, it needed quite a bit of work, sweetie. Okay. Thanks. With the release of Palo Alto, we also see the arising of a new member of the Coppola filmmaking clan, Gia Coppola, the granddaughter of Francis Ford Coppola, uh, takes little from her grandfather's work and more from her aunt's work, Sophia Coppola. Adapted from a collection of short stories as written by James Franco, uh, Palo Alto follows the lives of a group of California teenagers in Palo Alto, the California suburb. We follow the lives of three teenagers in particular. April, that's played by Emma Roberts, the shy virgin who engages in illicit flirtations with her high school soccer coach, as played by James Franco, and best friends Fred and Teddy, as played by Nat Wolf and Jack Kilmer. Jack Kilmer, whose father Val Kilmer also appears in the film as April's stepfather. Whilst the influence of Sofia Coppola hangs heavily over the visual side of the film, 
thankfully, that is the only influence Sofia Coppola has over it. Uh, I feel that this is more in tune with the work of Brett Easton Ellis, although that probably comes from James Franco's original short stories, although I can't comment too much into it as I haven't read them. This makes a nice combination. I say nice in quotation marks. Nice in that you have the Sofia Coppola distant, cool style. Fog hangs heavily over these characters, but only in the background. They're aware of it, but not really conscious of it. Whereas the Bret Easton Ellis influence really is the most powerful. They're narcissistic, selfish characters who indulge in their primal urges without much care or thought. And ultimately, they know they're on to road to ruin. And in a, the hope to stop that, to, you know, change their life directions, they cling on to what they have in these, frankly, boring suburbs. Palo Alto is the California suburbs that you don't really hear about. Not glamorous enough for Hollywood, but far too glamorous for other parts of the country. Think Nebraska, for example. These uh, characters that are aware of their standing in the world and where they could potentially go to and where they could live up to, but frankly, they seem to enjoy the idea of being outsiders within the community of California. Almost as if they're a part of a suburban cult of sorts, one that they think that they want to break out of but secretly enjoy being there. After I finished watching the film, um, I wasn't quite sure whether it was a, su a success or not in what it was aiming to do. Um, I'm not sure whether it was romanticising them, or condemning them, or even really just being distant and showing us just what their lives are. Um, I felt that Gia Coppola maybe indulged in the James Franco-ness of it all. You can feel his influence quite heavily over it, and I mean, I get it, she's a first-time filmmaker, and she's got financing probably on the back of that he's on, he's, his name being attached to this, you know, through creating it, and also starring in it. Um, but the positives outweigh the negatives of it. The negatives being... It's, it, even though it runs at around about an hour 40, it does feel a bit flabby at times. The characters kind of just endlessly repeat themselves to the point of mild annoyance for me. And whilst uh, I kind of get that, the idea that they are repeating themselves constantly, that they can't really break out of these cycles, it doesn't need to be played up as much as it is. And also the relationship between April and uh, Emma Roberts' character and the James Franco character was at times bordering on cliché and, you know, cliché can be a good thing. There's many a brilliant film that I've seen that hits hundreds of clichés but are still immensely watchable, something like Boogie Nights, for example. But with this, it was too on the nose for my liking. But as I said, the positives outweigh the negatives. The performances are very strong in this, uh, as is the tone of it. Gia Coppola has a strong eye, and 
is able to create a mood and atmosphere that is very singular. Uh, as I said, you can feel some influences of her aunt Sophia. This is very much her own world, whereas Sophia Coppola felt at times masturbatory in her eye for the lives of young, wealthy people in something like The Bling Ring or Lost in Translation or somewhere. With this, Gia Coppola has a slightly more scathing look at these characters, at times condemning them, at times romanticising them, but at all times making them immensely interesting. As I said, these characters have cliched moments, getting stoned in a car, crashing a car as well, hanging out outside a pool, skinny dipping in a pool at a party. She does so with a panache that hadn't been seen by a coppola in many a year. I think perhaps even her grandfather could take a look at her work and glean something from it. I hope that for her own sake she strikes out a bit more away from the visual style she uses here, because as I said before, at times it does feel very much like her aunt's work, but I, th I see a lot of promise in there. With this, she's demonstrated that she can tell a story convincingly and coherently, and that's a lot more than Sophia Coppola has done. I think uh, Gia Coppola is someone to look out for in the future, and this is a film that is very much worth your time as well an interesting world that she's created here, even though ultimately it is just the suburbs, but as these characters know themselves, the suburbs are never just the suburbs. Teddy was always gone doing work or probation or whatever you call that baloney. We talked on the phone a few Emily times. Emily didn't have any friends. I didn't talk the long. The only person she knew was me. Just enough to make her feel comfortable. One afternoon, we went to Jason King's house She didn't talk drinks. much. Jason's parents were gone. I did all the talking. We were drinking sodas and vodka and smoking pot. I was a nice guy. I'm a nice guy to everyone. Emily came over. I got her into Jason's her parents, parents bed. Doctors. Got her naked. The guys lined up outside they the bedroom. In a big brown house. We went in. She opened two the door. Two or three at a time. Outside. Everyone fucked her. We ran around the house to a shed in the backyard. I kept going back in with everyone. She gave me a host. I asked if she liked I put it. my clothes on when I ushered people in. She said she did. I was a wild monkey. Then I left. At the suggestion of Jack McEnroy, the Kevin Smith of the uh, Holdfast Network, uh, he suggested that at the end of each episode, the last segment of each episode, I should do uh, a question, answer a question couple questions. Uh, he suggested looking at the AV Club Q&A, um, which is a segment on the AV Club website where readers can send in questions to the writers at the AV Club and they answer the questions. And I had a look through and I found this one, which is a good one. What's your pop culture dealmaker? The thing that someone can profess to enjoy and gain your total respect, no matter what. And then there was another one on the flip side, which is, what are your pop cultural deal makers? These are cultural products that someone can profess to enjoy only while losing all your respect. Um, I'll start with the losing all my respect. Um, I really don't have one for that, um, because that'd be a bit silly to lose all respect for someone because they enjoy something that I hate, but... There are things that I 
greatly dislike. Um, that when people say they do like it, I, it does make me question their taste a little bit. I can't really say anything with regards to music, considering of all the terrible music that I enjoy. Terrible, with quotation marks around it. Um, my friend the other day threw him, as I was making fun of her for enjoying Pearl Jam, she threw in my face that I liked the Miley Cyrus album that came out last year. And rightfully so, it's a fantastic pop album. Um, was it last year or earlier this year? I can't remember. So music's kind of off limits for me to hate, or for me to judge you for on, uh, judge you on. But I guess in terms of like books, the obvious one would be something like Da Vinci Code. But even then, it's like you know, I've enjoyed books that are very very pulpy. I mean, Stephen King is not the most challenging writer in the world, and he even admits to that, saying that he's the Big Mac and fries of literature. So, even then in books, I'm kind of... I can't really judge. TV shows, maybe... I think in terms of TV shows, it would be the obvious ones, which are... Because I don't watch much TV, so I can be a bit more judgmental with that. Because I only watch the finest cuts when it comes to television. Um, it would be something like some terrible multi-camera sitcom. Or Family Guy, which is just horrendous. Um, what's one that I really hate? The Walking Dead? People who are really into that, but then even people that are really into that have said that, yeah, it's pulp rubbish. So, I can't even really hate on that. In terms of movies, the obvious one for me is Sofia Coppola. Anyone who's a, a big fan or has enjoyed all of her work, I just, I just greatly question what you're doing with your life, you know. Are you, like, what are you here for? All of her films are truly awful. Um, and even the, the less bad ones, like uh, Virgin Suicides, even that is that's a chore to get through that film. Um, so yeah, I question that. I question... Even though I like him, Quentin Tarantino is one where I question when you say... Oh, he's my favourite filmmaker. It's like, okay. It's kind of, it's a real conversation ender. <laughs> I think that's the only way I can describe it. Because I just, I, I greatly enjoy his films, but I just don't get anything beyond them, beyond the surface level, you know. I mean, and I say this is someone who loves Inglorious Bastards and loved and loves uh, Jackie Brown. But, you know, stuff like Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill and Death Proof, and to a certain extent parts of Django Unchained, it, they were dead on arrival at some point. Actually, just uh, mentioning Django Unchained just reminded me of something that I saw when I went to see it. 
I saw it at the Coronet in Notting Hill, which is a beautiful cinema and you should go there because it's just stunning, particularly the main screen because it's you have a balcony as well. It's a very nice uh, cinema. And I was sat maybe about five rows from the back and it's not like steeped, so it's like fairly flat seating so you can see it. And there was like a huge gap and then there was a bunch of people towards a bit close to the front. And uh, there's the bit in in it where um, Rick Ross' song 100 Black Coffin starts to play. And these, f- these four honkies started bobbing their heads to that in the middle of, as the film was playing. And it was, I, I was cringing so much at watching these... Uh, her- Awful people bobbing their heads to it. It was just t- terrible. I mean, I don't know. Perhaps I should beep the word honky. I don't know if that's really bad. If I should leave that in. I'll, whatever. Um, on the flip side of a pop cultural deal, ma- deal maker, I think it's anything that I, that I like that's a bit obscure I tell you what, what, one thing I really like is when you know um, when you go to university and you meet people who have similar tastes to you and they like similar things to you and particularly when it comes to filmmakers it'll be something like say if like oh I like Truffaut and it's like oh what Truffaut have you seen uh, 400 Blows and Jules and Jim and that's fine because that's the ones most people have seen um, but what I like is when, when someone, a real pop cultural deal maker where I'll enjoy speaking to someone is when they can give me an album cut of a filmmaker's back catalogue. So that would be, so Truffaut would be like Mississippi Mermaid. Like if you can talk to me about that or, or if you know that and you enjoyed it or The Magician by Bergman or, um, or Cul-de-sac by Polanski. Or, um, or Hard Eight by Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, that's that's what I like. Is when that's a, that's a real cool thing. Is when someone can give you some album side, some 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 B sides, some album cuts from filmmakers. Um, uh, in terms of music. I haven't met, I don't know, I think that's it in terms of like pop cultural deal makers in terms of films, in terms of books, if you're just into books that's just fantastic, like getting book recommendations is the best thing in the world to me, because they're just, you know, Again, uh, book recommendation is the best thing in the world. You know, it shows that someone's engaged, and it shows that they're they're, they're on it, and that's someone that you want to talk to again and again and again. I find someone that can talk to you about, you know, getting book recommendations off Twitter of of, uh, of certain people. That's that's great when you see that because I've got like whole bookmarks, got books bookmarks the Amazon links, um, just purely from people on Twitter. Um, and that's always a great, uh, 
that's something that's that's a pop cultural deal maker for me. Um, just any book recommendations that don't look terrible, you know, not some erotic novel that you'd get in a service station, you know. So those are my pop cultural deal makers. Um, if you have any more questions that you would want to send to me, you can send it to my Twitter at uh, the piss off. We can send it to my Ask FM, uh, Ask FM, Ask dot FM forward slash the piss off. Um, so yeah, you can send me questions there for next week's episode. How much owe you, ma'am? Dollar and a half. There you are. Keep change. Just keep your eye out for that mischief. Let me have a Diablo sandwich, a Dr. Pepper, and make it fast. I'm in a goddamn hurry. You want something? Hush, puppy, daddy. We got no time for that crap. You stupid. Diablo and Doc. So that was this week's episode of the Left Field Shout. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you'll be back next week to listen some more. Um, it should be pretty much like that every week now. Two reviews and some questions. Uh, as I said before, you can send questions in. And if they're any good, I'll maybe answer them. Um, or if there's anything that you want to send me to have a read of or look at for a potential future episode, then let me know. Um, uh, and yeah, I hope you enjoyed the show, uh, and I'll speak to you next week. Uh, yeah, bye. <laughs>